0: CHAPTER SEVENTEEN OF HOUSE, GARDEN, AND FIELD BY L. C. Meall. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. THE PURPLE Saxifrage. There are two or three vigorous plants of purple saxifrage on my rockery, and one of these has flourished for years, delighting us every April with its purple flowers, which are large and numerous for so small a plant. The stem is prostrate, and the leaves make little rosettes. Why do this and certain other plants thrive better among stones than in common soil? Gardeners have a notion that big stones keep the soil warm. I do not accept this belief until it is confirmed by thermometer readings. Stone has less capacity for heat than water, and wet soil might be expected to keep its heat better than rock. Stones promote drainage, especially when they are porous, fissured, or liable to occasional slipping. And this is, I believe, a more important consideration. A stony soil limits the number of competitors and gives an advantage to such plants as the saxifrages, which can thrive almost without earth, or to those which are able to send their roots into long, winding crevices. Another thing that must not be overlooked is that big stones screen plants from the wind. When you make a rockery, do not set awkwardly shaped stones on end in a steep pile. Such stones look like broken teeth, and cast shadows which hinder the growth of the plants which are set in the interspaces. Lay the stones nearly flat, and keep the slope so gentle that they neither intercept all the sunlight nor create torrents in heavy rain. It is often advantageous to tilt the stones a little in such a direction that they drain into the rockery and not away from it. A rockery that starts abruptly out of level ground is as flagrantly artificial as one that is stuck over with spar or bits of grotesque limestone. Let the surface continue the natural curves of the ground, if there are such, or rise imperceptibly, if there are none. Let the stones be large, earth-fast, and all of that kind, whatever it is, which comes most plentiful to hand. Let your alpines creep among them at their own pleasure, except where over-luxuriance calls for pruning. The reward of judicious laying out will be found in a modest array of healthy and varied plants, set where we can enjoy them every day. Of course, we cannot hope for the charm of the untouched natural experiment, the nook among the hills where a little collection of wildflowers have found the shelter, the moisture, and the light that suit them best. We must be content with some one pleasant effect, the rich color of autumn cranes bill in a sunlit fissure, mossy saxifrage carpeting a broad, damp stone, a dwarf mountain ash rooted in a safe crevice, potentillas in their summer glory of yellow and green, or cotone asters with leaves that redden at the approach of winter. Our enjoyment of the flowers will often be heightened by the recollection of some remote spot where we have seen them flourish in perfection. An alpine pass, it may be, or a stony hillside in the field, or a rocky cleft in our own familiar lake country. I wonder whether any botanist would have been sagacious enough to infer from the structure of the purple saxifrage that it is the most ubiquitous of arctic plants, showing itself wherever a patch of rock breaks the ice and snow of the far north. I think not, but the range of plants is generally known long before their structure has been investigated, and it was so in this case. Considering how peculiar are the conditions of life in polar regions, that the surface of the ground is seldom free from ice and snow, that the subsoil is often permanently frozen, that for months together in winter the sun never rises, while for as many months in summer he never sets, one would have expected to find the arctic plants, or many of them, strikingly different from all others in appearance and internal structure. Having become adapted to polar conditions, we might suppose that they would thereby become unfit for all others. Our purple saxifrage shows how mistaken any such expectation would be. It has its special adaptations to arctic life, as we shall shortly see, but these adaptations do not catch the eye at a glance, and I think that no one without direct observation would have ever suspected that among the plants which venture nearest to the North Pole are dandelion and lady's smock, which we consider very ordinary plants indeed. The conditions of Arctic life are not so trying to plants as to animals. When frost sets in and the ground is buried deep in snow, very nearly all plant life ceases to be active. On the other hand, when the sun shines throughout the 24 hours, almost any plant would thrive. The only general physical condition that is rigorously imposed upon Arctic plants is the not very stringent one that they must be able to endure intense cold during the dormant season the success or failure of many competing species is probably determined by other conditions, such as whether the flowers are attractive to the insects which buzz about the flowers in the Arctic summer, or whether the seeds are capable of transport by any natural agent over great expanses of snow. In all climates, we find that the qualities which ensure the predominance of certain species are hardly to be appreciated by human intelligence. We cannot tell why among our British composite weeds Particular kinds enjoy a special dominance, each in a site of its own selection, dandelion and daisy in short grass, hawkweeds on railway cuttings, thistles in ill-drained pastures, ground cell on roadsides, and so on. There are scores of other composites which to the obtuse perceptions of man would have seemed just as likely to prevail in these very spots. The adaptations of plants to cold conditions are commonly such as these. 1. The stature is low arctic willows and birches for example are only a few inches high two the shoots dare not expose themselves to the bitter wind and branching freely without elongating form dense almost solid bushes especially in windswept places three the leaves are small very numerous clustered sometimes hairy often leathery with dense cuticle sometimes succulent often evergreen four the stomates may be protected by being depressed beneath the general surface by a waxy bloom or by the rolling of the whole leaf into a hollow sheath. 5. The tissues are often particularly dry and growth is slow. 6. The flowers are often large and bright-colored. Many of these adaptations are found in the purple saxifrage, which is prostrate with small, tufted, succulent leaves, hidden stomates, relatively large and bright flowers. Close examination brings to light some interesting details. The leaves of the purple saxifrage have been minutely described by Lansniewski in Flora, 1896. The leaf is of small size, rarely exceeding five millimeters in length, or one-fifth of an inch. It is elongate, widening towards the tip, and fringed by fine teeth. The leaves are grouped into four ranked rosettes, which open imperfectly and are thus partially screened from light and air. The upper part of each leaf, which is more exposed than the rest, is covered by a dense cuticle. The stomates are restricted to the lower part, which is often sheltered by other leaves. Near the tip of the leaf is a large water pour, by which any excess of water in the vessels can be promptly exuded. In a sudden access of cold, abundance of water is so dangerous to the tissues that many plants besides the purple saxifrage have special means of discharging it. The cellular substance of the leaf of the purple saxifrage is succulent, but not very copious, and it is laden with unfreezeable contents. In early spring, as soon as the snow is gone, large, rose-colored flowers hide the stem and leaves. The flowers are solitary, erect, short-stalked, and about half an inch in diameter, very large therefore in comparison with the size of the leaves. The honey is more deeply placed than in other saxifrages. These peculiarities are probably connected with the observed fact that whereas most saxifrages are pollinated by flies, this one species is diligently and persistently visited by butterflies, whose favorite color, like that of moths, is purple, and which, unlike some other butterflies, have long tongues, able to penetrate the recesses of flowers. Seeing how completely the purple saxifrage is enabled to endure extreme cold, the wonder is, not so much that it ranges far north, as that it should be able to make itself comfortable in an English rockery, where both cold and heat are moderated by winds blowing off the sea and bringing with them almost incessant rain. This is not an isolated case. Many of our very common plants, while able to thrive under British conditions, are equally fit to withstand the sharpest cold ever felt on this planet. I hope it will not discourage the reader too much if I set down the distribution of the purple saxifrage, that kind of information is as a rule very depressing because it is poured out in unrelenting doses and put to no use whatever. If we treat one plant only and exert ourselves to interpret the facts of its distribution, we may possibly attain some small result. At any rate, the sacrifice of time and space will not be very great. The purple saxifrage overspreads all suitable places and especially clefts and crannies of the rocks throughout the arctic regions of the three continents, which border on the North Pole. It forms large carpets on the tundras. In Europe, it travels southwards along the Scandinavian mountains, becoming more scattered the farther it goes. It is found high up on the mountains of Scotland and Wales, on some of the lake mountains. It is profuse, for instance, in Dungeon Gill, and a few of the Yorkshire hills. It reappears in the Alps, descending as low as the Lake of Constance, the Jura, and the Pyrenees. In America, it occurs in parts of Canada and the Rocky Mountains, getting as far south as Mexico, but the eastern states do not seem to suit it, and it is only found completely isolated on Willoughby Mountain in Vermont. In Asia, it is found at great heights on the Himalayas and other southern ranges. One can fancy the purple saxifrage laying down the conditions under which it could engage to be happy, and saying, The far north for me. What I like best of all is a little rocky knoll, open to the sun, but sheltered from the wind. Let us fix the latitude at something between seventy degrees and eighty degrees north. I want a place where the snow melts early, and where the snow water can run off at once through chinks and clefts. I don't in the least object to a short summer of three months, for the sun will be shining all the time, so that I can get my flowering and fruiting over before the nine months winter sets in give me such a place as that, and I promise to make things gay. Such a burst of purple bloom as you shall see. If I can't get exactly what I ask for, I don't mind living farther south, provided that I find a sheltered nook among the rocks. Let there be plenty of sun, good shelter from the wind, and the higher the better. If I am to be set down in western Europe, I prefer that slope of the mountains which is turned away from the damp southwest wind. There must be no peat or clay to hinder the water from running off. Above all, I want the place, whatever it is, to myself, and can put up with a site which is not all I could wish, if it suits my rivals worse than it suits me. Some plants, which take up little room, I don't strongly object to as neighbors. Sedums and pinks and the modest little drabas are unobjectionable. Polymoniums are too aggressive and cover too much ground with their odious blue flowers. How anyone can dress in blue I can't understand. Cryptogamic riffraff, such as lichens and that sort of thing, need not be taken into account. But whatever you do, keep me off the places where there are a lot of heaths. I am quite sure that the heaths and I can never be happy together. Some naturalists, whose opinion carries the greatest weight, have invoked the glacial period to explain the distribution of such plants as the purple saxifrage. Charles Darwin and Edward Forbes put forth a glacial explanation of the present range of Arctic and Alpine plants, which was afterwards adopted by Sir Joseph Hooker in his Outlines of the Distribution of Arctic Plants, Philosophical Transactions, 1860. The leading features of the explanation are these. In glacial times, the ancient flora of Europe, whatever it was, became supplanted by an Arctic flora. When the climate grew milder again, the Arctic flora either retreated northwards or else climbed the Alps and other mountain ranges. In this way, it came about that the same plants occur on distant mountain summits and also in the Arctic regions. Analyzing the argument, it seems to rest upon these four propositions. 1. The Arctic regions have a characteristic flora. 2. The Alpine regions of Europe have a characteristic flora. 3. These two floras are so nearly the same that they may be supposed to have had a common origin in comparatively recent times. 4. The Arctic alpine flora in Central Europe is now restricted to high ground. I believe, on the contrary, that known facts, and even the tables of Hooker's memoir, justify the following very different propositions. 1. There is no extensive and characteristic Arctic flora. There is, indeed, a scanty assemblage of peculiar Arctic species, but most Arctic plants, especially such as are widespread and frequent, are, like the purple saxifrage, found also in temperate Europe, temperate Asia, or temperate North America. 2. There is an extensive and characteristic European alpine flora, which comprises so many peculiar species that it is probably much older than the glacial period. 3. The Arctic and alpine floras are by no means identical. Such characteristic alpine genera as Dentitia, Primula, and Soldanella hardly occur within the arctic circle. Though the so-called arctic flora has many species in common with the alpine flora, these common species are in, by far, the greater number of cases characteristic of neither. They are generally frequent and widespread in the interjacent lands at all elevations. Among these may be named the buttercups, several species, lady's smock, shepherd's purse, dog violet, campion, wood sorrel, the commonest clovers and vetches, silverweed, colt's foot, milfoil, dandelion, harebell, ling, thyme, speedwell, the plantains, sorrel, crowberry, and the nettles, besides most of the rushes, sedges, and grasses. The reputed Arctic alpine species are often far more plentiful outside the Arctic and alpine regions than within them. 4. The Arctic alpine species are by no means restricted in temperate countries to heights, but often thrive at moderate elevations, if not pressed too hard by man or by competing species. Cold, wind, and other severe climatic conditions have brought about in not a few plants special adaptations to Arctic and Alpine conditions. The experiments of Bonnier show how directly and rapidly transplantation from small to great elevations may act upon certain plants, inducing reduction in size of parts exposed to air crowding of leaves and shoots, enlargement of roots, and the like. The fact that they are capable of rapid adaptation has made it possible for certain plants to maintain themselves on high, bleak, wind-swept mountains and on Arctic shores, as well as in the sheltered lowlands of temperate regions. The absence of visible adaptation to extremely hard climatic conditions is, however, equally remarkable. Take the list just given and see how few of the plants named could have been set down as arctic alpine by mere consideration of their structure. Insufficient attention has, I think, been paid to the acts of man in draining and reclaiming wastes. There can be no doubt that many European plants, now restricted to high or northern tracts, could perfectly well endure a mild climate if they were left undisturbed by draining, mowing, grazing, and the competition of introduced species. A cause so apparently slight as the application year by year of a particular chemical manure has been found to affect visibly the proportions of certain species in the herbage. Thus, it has been found at Rothamsted that the product of a tract of unmanured permanent grassland included nearly 50 species, namely about 17 grasses, 4 leguminous plants, and 27 species of other families. By vigorous manuring for many years continuously, the number of species was reduced to 15, the leguminous herbage becoming excluded altogether, and the miscellaneous herbage nearly so. Purely mineral manures reduce the percentage by weight of grasses and increase the percentage by weight of leguminous plants in the hay while they reduce both the number of the species and the proportion by weight in the hay of the miscellaneous herbage. In the same way, where a farm immediately adjoins a moor, there is often a striking contrast between the vegetation which has been grazed and manured and that which has been left in a state of nature. A wall may thus come to separate two plots which are occupied by two quite different assemblages of plants. By the discouragement of many species which are either unprofitable to man or unable to withstand under artificial conditions, the competition of the introduced and selected species which thrive by cultivation the flora of the wastes has come to appear more alpine and arctic than it really is. Even now, if cultivation were to cease, if the streams were again to become choked with swamps, if the imported species were no longer favored by manuring and cropping, we should probably see many species of plants descend from the barren hilltops to establish themselves in the plains or on the lower hills. The process by which during the period of scientific observation these denizens of the wilderness have been ousted from many spots where they used to thrive, would be reversed, and such reversal, if carried far, would give such an extension to the flora which we call alpine or arctic as we should expect to result from a great fall in mean annual temperature. I do not believe that we need call in the glacial period to explain the present distribution of European plants. With or without a glacial period, we should have had under present conditions of climate and tillage, a great contrast between the cultivated land and the wastes. The waste would, as now, occupy the far north and the highest ground of Central Europe. There would be species common to both areas, which no longer occur in the interjacent lands. To explain the identity of the Arctic and Alpine floras by means of the glacial period is to explain by a well-ascertained fact a coincidence which is not yet established. Before we ask what is the cause of the identity of the Arctic and Alpine floras, let us ask whether they are truly identical. End of chapter 17